0: Before I say uh, what I've come here to say, I first want to thank the Lord for the sermon that was preached from Psalm 115 this morning and hope that we all take uh, deeply into our hearts, not to us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name be the glory. And if you want to know what the essence of Calvinism is, to use the church historical term, that was it. So I encourage, if someone was not here that they take the time uh, to listen to the sermon. We welcome Dr. Charles J. Flesher and his wife Kathy with us this morning in the evening service. Uh, Ch- Chuck is an experienced pastor. He is a Calvinist. He's not a Presbyterian, but I'm a Presbyterian because of him in large measure. and. Uh, he actually helped to disciple me when I was a young man of, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. He was a very young pastor. I still see a lot of the young Chuck in him, uh, and I don't know what's happened to me. But, uh, uh, but Chuck also just had uh, knee surgery, and so I've told him to be very, very careful on these steps that he says he can negotiate. So we're pleased that he will be with us. But he, he helped to disciple me as a boy. He also introduced me to his sister Vicki, right over here, and for which I thank the Lord. One of the things that was such a help to me in those days was his expository preaching. He was committed to preaching the text and expounding the text. And then later, when he moved to pastor uh, churches in Ohio, uh, the Ohio Bible Fellowship. Uh, I went on and was discipled by uh, people like Jay Adams and my Westminster professors, uh, such as Sinclair Ferguson and Richard Gaffin and others. But the foundation that was laid by Charles J. Flesher for my Christian life and ministry um, was extraordinarily important. And um, I just thank God for you and for the influence that you've had in my life not being content to uh, retire. He now is a representative of, and I hope he has brought some of these with him tonight, of the Associated Gospel Churches, which goes all the way back into the time of the modernist fundamentalist controversy in the 1930s. And uh, around the time of the Second World War, if I remember correctly, that mission's organization began to focus on getting chaplains into the armed services and other places where they were needed so that Bible-believing chaplains would have uh, an agency that would would help to sponsor them. And so Chuck continues to preach the word and continues to serve in that capacity. So we give all the glory to God, Psalm 115, 1 and following, and we honor the servant. Thank you, brother.
1: Thank you. It's good to be with you tonight. Thank you for those kind words. I always enjoy being here because I love that music. I go some places where it's not that good, believe it or not. Not only from the standpoint of of, of uh, the singing, but the quality is, you know. If the, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm really pleased that those children are picking out those great hymns. That's encouraging, isn't it? Thank God for that. So it is a joy to be with you here. Uh, tonight and it's a joy to be with my sister that I get to see now about once a year coming here and uh, so we are pleased to be with you Kathy my wife she's my right-hand person and without her I would lose a lot of stuff believe it or not I've lost three cell phones but she always she has a checklist for me you got your cell phone you got your Bible you got your notes you got your wallet you've got you know all of that And that is a big help to me. So, uh, again, we're glad to be with you. And I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm reading out of the authorized version. Beginning at verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 17, I try to take a little time there because in our first church, I had a lady come to me, pastor, and she said, you announce that text and zoom right into it. Give us some time, would you please? So I try to remember that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath committed to us, to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In the nineteen sixty-eight presidential election, Richard Nixon, hoping to add to the wind column, the state of Ohio, decided to do a whistle stop tour through Western Ohio beginning in Cincinnati and finishing in Toledo. In northwest Ohio, the train carrying the Nixon entourage stopped at the little town of Deshler, Ohio. As Nixon spoke, one of the candidate's handlers noticed 13-year-old Vicki Cole, daughter of a Methodist pastor in Deschler, holding a sign her sign she lost she just happened to pick this one up and she held up a sign that said this bring us together well nixon's handler turned it over to william sapphire nixon's speechwriter and he inserted that motto into many of nixon's concluding speeches of the 1968 election after nixon's win the President invited Vicky and uh, her family to the inaugural parade. She sat on a float, and right beside her was a large stand and was that sign, bring us together. Nixon's goal was to bring the, next, the nation together. It was reconciliation. Reconciliation has to do with a change of personal relations between human beings. It's used that way twice in the New Testament. And it also is used four times in reference to reconciliation between God and man. Our text is one of the four in which it's stated that God reconciles sinful man. Whereas sinners are hostile and estranged from God because of their sin, God, in His grace, replaces that enmity and hostility to one of peace, one of fellowship, from one of disagreement to agreement. The Scripture is clear that God is the author of reconciliation. If you note the text, it says in verse 18, all this from God. Verse 19, God was in Christ. Verse 20, God making His appeal for us. William Charles Robinson reminds us, in the miracle of grace, his everlasting love reaches out even for his enemies. Men do not reconcile God, but he so changes the situation between himself and man that he reconciles the world unto himself. God is the subject of the whole reconciling process. God the Father is the author. God the Son is the agent. He's the agent in reconciliation. Apart from Calvary, reconciliation would be impossible. In Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.22, Paul states that sinners are reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The apostle in, first, in Colossians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.16 says, Reconciliation is through the blood of Christ. And in verse 21 of our text, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Without propitiation... Without propitiation, Jesus satisfying sin's awful penalty by his death on the cross. Without that, there could be no reconciliation between God and man. But on Calvary, a wonderful exchange, to quote Luther, takes place. All my sin was placed on Christ, and all of his righteousness was imputed to me. Now God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. So Jesus is the agent of reconciliation, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of reconciliation. He makes reconciliation effective by shedding abroad in our hearts the love of God, to quote Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Now, after we're reconciled, Paul goes on to say in the text that I read, we are ministering this word of reconciliation to others. We beseech, one translation says. We beg, another translation says. We implore others to be reconciled to God. We become God's ambassadors. We represent the King of Heaven, and we urge others to lay down their implements of rebellion and be reconciled to God. We're His ambassadors. And so our message tonight is from the next chapter, chapter 6. Because Paul lists for us some marks of a good ambassador of Jesus Christ. The apostle doesn't receive the grace of God in vain, he begins chapter 6 with. But he shows believers what the ministry of reconciliation will look like as it's lived out to the full. Here in this chapter is a snapshot of someone who is a worthy ambassador for Christ. What then are the marks of a good ambassador of Jesus Christ. And the first one is found in verse 3. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. A good ambassador of Jesus Christ, first of all, is careful before men. Careful before men. Now, people did find fault with Paul. But the point he's making is that none of it stuck. He knew in his own heart that all the things that his enemies said about him were false. The word offense in the authorized, other versions say stumbling, can mean obstacle. Paul had put no obstacle in anyone's way lest they be hindered from coming to Christ. You read that first, uh, the uh, second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, as Paul writes to that church, and he said, you know, I, treat, I was like a, a loving father to you. I was like a nursing mother to you. Uh, I, I didn't covet your money. Uh, I, I worked with my own hands. There was nothing that anyone could lay at the feet of Paul and say so he kept me from Christ. You know, one of the saddest things in our time is the number of pro- prominent Christian workers who have allowed offensive obstacles to wreck their ministries and bring reproach on the gospel of Christ. Every one of us must remember that we're living on a stage, and others, especially unbelievers, are watching us to see how we behave. A good ambassador of Jesus Christ is careful before men. Secondly, a good ambassador of Jesus Christ is commendable before God. Look at that fourth verse, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. And as you read on in this autobiographical portion about Paul's life, endurance is the key. God, looking upon Paul's life, is pleased and glorified by the fact that no matter what happened to him, he sticks with it. The word endurance means to stay under pressure, and the mark of a Christian who has learned to walk with God is that he does not quit. Now, there are certain pressures which Christ's ambassadors must face, and Paul lists them in groups of threes. Begin in the middle of verse 4. He talks about tough obstacles. And he says afflictions, hardships, distresses. Afflictions are the normal problems we face. Maybe tonight you are under some pressure. It may be financial. It may be a family problem. It may be a disappointment of some sort. Whatever. Whatever. Heard the story of a man who went to the cemetery to decorate his mother and father's grave. And he couldn't help but hear a man just a little ways from him on his knees crying out, Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? And he thought for a moment and said, You know, I, I need to comfort that man. And so he said, Sir, but the man paid no attention. He just kept saying, Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? So the man went up to him and put his hand on his shoulder and said surely, thinking it must be the man's wife and so he said to the man I'm sure that you miss her terribly the man looked up at him finally and said it's not my wife's grave, it's the grave of her first husband. (laughs) Afflictions! Afflictions! Then there are hardships. Things you didn't ask for, but you can't get away from. Something you have to live with. Don't you love Fanny Crosby's wonderful hymns? Jesus, keep me near the cross. There are precious. Just so many wonderful hymns, which are very positive. And yet, when she was a little girl, she went blind. And... You'd never tell, however, there was any note of disappointment or bitterness in her life. As a matter of fact, when she was eight years old, who's eight here? Anybody eight? Are you eight? Who's eight? Got to be somebody. Seven and a half? All right. Listen to what she wrote when she was eight. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am determined that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot and I won't. Now, is that not facing necessities with a cheerful spirit? And then he mentions distresses. That word... Our brother has got his Greek text there. That word means narrow places. It's the idea of an army caught in a narrow space or a ship that cannot outrun a storm. Paul was in those kind of situations. He didn't see any way out. But in all of these, Paul endured. He hung in there and he glorified God. Uh, next, there was the tough opposition that he faced. Look at the first part of verse 5. Stripes, imprisonments, tumults. You read about the beatings that he endured in verse 23 through 27 of, this, of, this, uh, of chapter 11 of this book. According to Clement of Rome, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned seven times, but we only have three of them mentioned in the New Testament. And then there were tumults or mobs. Think of that mob in Acts 19 when the silversmiths were concerned they were going to lose out and lose their money. And they charged the apostle Paul, threatened to kill him. And then there were tough commitments. That's the last part of verse 5. Labors, fastings, hunger. These are the things that Paul chose to do So he wouldn't be chargeable to anyone for his preaching. Tent making. Missed meals. Going without sleep. Yet he never quit. Now not only did Paul face these conditions. But in the midst of them. There was a certain character he displayed. And you see that in verse 6. and the first part of verse 7. And there are two divisions here. Each containing four parts. The first four are the qualities of his life. First of all, purity. Paul lived in a day of widespread immorality just like ours. He had to live and travel in the midst of people given over to sensuality. Yet he lived above all of that. So should we. Knowledge. Knowledge of what? No doubt, knowledge of God's Word. And then patience. Patience. We're patient with circumstances, but when we're patient with people, we call that long suffering. Putting up with people. Well, Pastor better have that. Putting up with people. Forgiving them. Ignoring some of their irritating ways. Long suffering often think of that remark that Mel Trotter made, founder of the Detroit Rescue Mission. He used to say, there are a lot of people I know who are wonderful Christians. I know they're going to go to heaven someday, and oh, how I wish they'd hurry up. Finally, kindness, thoughtfulness, courtesy, warmth. Then the next four show the resources he relied upon in order to be like that. Middle of verse 7 and the first part of, middle of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. And the first one is the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul relied upon more than anything else the Holy Spirit. Linked to that is agape, genuine love. It comes from God. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. This is what enables us to reflect that same love to other people. The word of truth. You know, we've got to spend a lot of time in God's word in order to see life as God sees it. I used to say to our young people in the pastorate, get into God's word. And see what is really important from God's standpoint. The word of truth. And finally, the power of God. The power of God. The weapons that Paul employed in the conflict are mentioned in the middle of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. Righteousness. Righteous behavior. He speaks as those weapons in chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. Not human plans and programs, but prayer and faith and love and righteous behavior. These are the weapons he used to attack the problems around him. And he did it whether it was popular or unpopular. Honor and dishonor. He stood true regardless of what people said to his face or behind his back. Good and evil report. A good ambassador for Jesus Christ is not only careful before man, he's commendable before God. Thirdly, Christ's ambassadors confound the world. And that's the middle of verse 8 through verse 10. There's seven series of contrasts here. You know, the world paints us as deceivers. Yet we know from God's word that Christ is the only hope For the human condition. In a day when the media is going crazy, promoting homosexuality, God is still delivering people from this plight. One of our Navy chaplains led a female sailor to Christ. A few weeks later she came back to him and said, chaplain, I've got a problem. I need your help. He said, what's the problem? She said, now that I've become a Christian, I realize I can no longer live with my wife. God delivered her from the sin of lesbianism. And she said, you know, I've got to make a break with that now. And you know, all the churches that pray for us and support us have a part in that wonderful gospel ministry To our troops. Aren't you glad there are some fundamental Bible-believing, preaching chaplains, preaching to our troops, preaching to those who are incarcerated, preaching to those in the Veterans Administration, preaching to those in our hospitals? The world looks upon us as deceivers, yet we know from God's Word that Christ is the only hope. And then, unknown, in other words, of little value in the world's eyes. So the world looks at us, oh, you little people in your little churches, singing your hymns. What can you do to solve the problems of the day? But my friend, in terms of God's evaluation, which really counts most important, you know how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. He uses an emphatic. He says, "You, my people." are the only light in this dark world. The only light your neighbors may have is you. The only light that someone in your workplace has is you. You and you alone are the light of the world. And Paul says dying. For him, that could have meant physical death. But I also think it's the idea of dying to his dreams and his ambitions, yet finding through dying to ourselves a new life, living our life and finding real life through him. Then he says, chastened by a loving father, yet never abandoned. And then sorrowful, no doubt sorrowful because others sorrow, and that means that we must be alert to the needs of other people. Yet always rejoicing that a sovereign God is able to work out every circumstance. Poor, yet making many spiritually rich. Having nothing, Paul says. You know, that was written to believers in a city where wealth was everything. Yet enjoying Everything with the realization that one day the entire universe will be ours. If you want to get excited sometime, read First Corinthians 3, 21 and 22, where Paul says, All things are yours in Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer, writing on this text, says this, A real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he's never seen, Talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he's wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, happiest when he feels the worst, he dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible and knows that which passes knowledge. The man who has met Christ is not looking for anything. He has found it. He's not searching for light, for upon him the light has already shined. His certainty may seem bigoted, but his assurance is that of one who knows by experience his religion is not hearsay. He's not a copy, not a facsimile. He's an original from the hand of the Holy Spirit." Christian believers are a contradiction to the world. Well, a good ambassador for Jesus Christ. We want our chaplains to be good ambassadors. Your pastor wants his flock to be good ambassadors. We all want to be good ambassadors. And if we are, we'll be careful before men, we'll recognize we're on a stage, people are looking. If you're not living it, don't say it. We're commendable before God. And we confound the world. A good ambassador for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Pastor. All right, Father, we thank you tonight for the attentiveness of your people, for your word, which gives light, life, and we pray as we leave here, we'll be like the Apostle Paul, a good ambassador for Jesus Christ, we pray it in his name. Amen.